no one knows what creativity means. They sort of think they do, but when you come to assess something, you really have to give the parameters to make a fair assessment and a rigorous assessment. Now, as soon as you can't do that, you realize that people are saying, well, it's risk-taking. Well, it's this, that, and the other, you know, and they had all these sort of things below what creativity was. Then creativity is risk-taking. It's collaborating. It's this, that, and the other, whatever it happened to be. Well, creativity is not necessarily those things. There's no evidence that it's those things. Character is another one. These are very loose terms. So when you start to say that this is important education, it doesn't mean it's not important to discuss what these things might be, but actually I discovered, if you like, that rather than creativity, creating is more important. Create something. <laughs> Don't learn about creativity, which was then taken over mainly by business people with their sort of we need creative people in business. So therefore, you should be teaching creativity. You can't do it. You can teach people to create things in certain subjects, in certain ways, in certain times. So, you know, we need to make more things in school if you want to teach people to create things. Teaching creativity is too nebulous. It doesn't mean anything. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, my fathomless friends, once again, and welcome to another exciting installment of the Rethinking Education podcast. Today, I am speaking with Martin Robinson, a very interesting thinker and writer and former teacher and now a consultant and the author of three very interesting books about the curriculum Trivium 21C, Athena versus the Machine and Curriculum Revolutions. And if you haven't had the good fortune to come across these books yet, I'll just give you a flavour of the kinds of feedback that they have received. About Trivium 21C, Melissa Benn, coincidentally the next guest on the Rethinking Education podcast with whom I had an amazing conversation a few days ago, wrote, Martin Robinson sets out on a quest to discover the kind of education he wishes for his daughter and we all learn a great deal in the process. I love his writing, wise, well-informed, provocative, thinking out loud, Robinson engages his reader from first to last, a terrific feat. About his second book, Athena versus the Machine, which is probably my favourite of the three, although they're all very good indeed, Tom Sherrington, the education consultant and blogger and author and also a former, twice former guest on this programme, as I recall, wrote that intellectually curriculum towers above the field of functional books about schooling. And he said that it's a must read for anyone looking to put some heart and soul into their curriculum. And there's a humdinger of a quote by Ben Newmark who wrote, this is a very important book. While the dumb and brutal ugliness of instrumentalist education is all too familiar to many of us, Never before has it been so clearly expressed or so convincingly unpicked and exposed. Martin Robinson's curriculum, Athena versus the Machine, however, is much more than a depressing, defeatist explanation as to why things have got as bad as they are. Instead, it is a beautifully written love letter to the very substance of education, a triumphant and confident call to arms, and is ultimately the manifesto on which the fight back against the machine should be based. 
pretty powerful stuff, as I'm sure you'll agree. And Curriculum Revolutions, Martin's most recent book, is more of a practical guide to understanding how to revise and re-revise your curriculum in an ongoing way through a series of revolutions. And to share another quote from Tom Sherrington, he describes this book as a powerful conceptual framework designed with the artful craftsmanship of a beautiful clock and insightful understanding of how teachers thrive. And there is also, rather excitingly in this book, a sort of pop-out wheel thing that you can use to spin around and figure out how to how to revolve your curriculum thinking. So anyway, I've been planning this conversation with Martin for a long time. I don't know why. It took like 18 months for this one to come to fruition. And we spoke for two hours and then we realised that we just had so much more to talk about that we recorded a second part in which we have a very interesting conversation that focuses more on Athena versus the machine and in which we have quite an interesting debate about character education. So I decided to put that out as a separate episode because otherwise this one would be three and a half hours long and I think that that would be quite long even for the strenuous taste of the long-form Rethinking Education listener. So, without further ado, I'm going to get straight into this conversation with Martin Robinson. I hope you enjoy the show. Martin Robinson, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hello, Dr. James Mannion. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for using my full title. I, I don't, I don't normally insist on it, but I'm quietly pleased when when people do use it. Um, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a very long time, and it's been a long time in the planning. This one, we've been we've been sort of like liaising on it for for quite some months, and I've followed your work for quite some years now since the surreal anarchy days. In fact. Wow. Can we briefly just touch on that? Why was your so your Twitter handle for for the benefit of listeners is now Trivium Twenty One C, I think, but it used to be Surreal Anarchy. I was just wondering about the origin of that phrase. Why did you attach to that handle? I think it was when I started on Twitter. I was very nervous about being on Twitter, so I didn't want to be a human being that is recognisable in any way. And I wanted to just make bizarre comments <laughs> and uh, surreal anarchy, you know, was what I what I wanted to spread. It was nothing to do with education, nothing to do with anything else. It was just to be this strange being <laughs> that would do strange things. I, I was nervous about it. It, it was a new um, medium. At, how, when was it? 2013, 2012? I don't know. Yes, um, something like that. And slowly I, I became more competent at it and confident with it and sort of um, emerged from the shadows and slowly started talking about education as well as a few other things and made lots of very interesting connections, some of which probably because of Surreal Anarchy um, as as a handle, I think they call it, and some people who probably had nothing to do with me at all because of that handle. (laughs) Well, keep away from him he's obviously a troll um but uh when my book came out trivium because i met you know i met publishers i met ian gilbert through through um twitter and if it wasn't for twitter i would never have published any books 
So really? it was his idea. Yeah, because I was talking about the trivium on about something with, uh, to do with it with him and someone else. Mm. And he said, you should write a book. And I said, don't be stupid. I can't write a book. And he said, no, have a go. And um, so it was him who got me into writing a book rather than any other way around. I was just, I would never have done it without him, put it that way. Ah, that's interesting. I really rate Ian. He's been a former former guest on this podcast. We had a very interesting chat, mainly about philosophy for children, which I'd like to ask you about later, actually. Um, and so, so I've been so you've written these three books now, um, in the last few years. So for the benefit of listeners, we have Trivium 21C, which we'll get into. Um, and then the second one was was Curriculum Athena versus the Machine which has the probably one of my favorite uh, book covers of all time. It's just glorious. I love that. And it's made me read all about Athena. I don't really know much about, about Greek mythology, um, but what a, what a character she is. And then, and then the recent one, um, Curriculum Revolution. So they're all curriculum themed. Um, and, and I'd like to get into each of those. But, but um, as you know, I also like to get to know the guest a little bit. Um, and in your case, um, I think it makes sense to to find out about you and your your career as a teacher as a way to as a way to lead into this thinking that you've been doing on curriculum, because uh, then it follows the timeline. And also, I'm interested just to flag this up. I'm interested to understand you <laughs> uh, because because as we as we discussed briefly off air, I often sort of find it hard to pigeonhole you for want of a better phrase not that one should go around pigeonholing people it's quite rude thing to do really because you, on the one hand you seem to be somebody who embraces you know ideas around um communities of inquiry and and wisdom and dialogue and deep thinking and reasoning and and things that are often sort of aligned with or associated with progressive ideas around education and how we should organize schools um, but also you seem to be quite disdainful of of things like the teaching of um, of character, certainly the idea of character education and even things like the teaching of communication skills and critical thinking and collaboration and so on. Um, you seem to 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 pour cold water on those ideas, which which often sort of go hand in hand. Lots of people who sort of believe in one of those things tends to sort of go along with the other. Um, and, all you know, so. Anyway, I'll just flag that. You don't have to answer that. You don't have to justify your, your position right now. But I'm hoping to sort of to tease that out over the course of this conversation to, to try to figure out um, your stance on these various matters. Yeah, that, that sounds, sounds like fun. And uh, it's, um, it's, do you think it's a lonely place to be then for me in this sort of uh, between two two stools i suppose or, or something like that two stools sounds rather rather, <laughs> rather horrible actually <laughs> two stalls is it is it stalls i don't stalls? know what it is anyway i'm between know. them once we did a christmas market at my school and the kids said um this way to our stall but they didn't look up how to pronounce stall first of all so they made posters that they stuck up all over the school saying this way to our stool anyway um <clears throat> So that's a that's a rough plan for how the conversation might map yeah. out. Does it seem like a lonely place? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think you're probably better equipped to answer that question. Do you feel like that that you're sort of a bit of a lone voice in this in within the education debate? I I, I find 
sometimes I am attacked by people from a place they think I stand to a place I th they think I stand rather than where I actually stand on things. But that's, you know, that is through the, the world of social media and things like that, rather than any people who perhaps read my books and, and taken a greater interest. Who, mm. um, usually you get the odd comment of people who've read it, who obviously um, decide they don't like it. But in the main, people who've read my stuff and, and, understand where i'm coming from seem to find it okay i think where i where i stand but those who haven't perhaps say hang on you said this <laughs> so you 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 come at something so a lot of what i say is about traditional the importance of tradition uh -huh. the importance of culture whatever that is and that that in itself is is a huge discussion um and also someone who comes at things with the importance of dialogue and argument and debate and being able to talk about stuff um, and realize that education is more of a conversation than it is a one-way journey into telling someone what to think in other words it's not indoctrination mm. um, and Indeed. That, that would be my my stand it's about the, the the easiest way to say about the trivium is it's education to free people it's a so education should be to, there to free the mind to free the person to live the life that they wish so they are free to think and once you take that on board well what frees people to think well one telling them one thing and that this is the only way to live and this is the only way to be is not freeing them to think it's indoctrinating them in a way of living so the the tradition if you like of the trivium was always to me one of liberation of thought and liberation of life yeah as much within parameters obviously yeah yeah okay and that that sounds perfectly reasonable and having read your work i know this it is perfectly reasonable but you think that there's so you don't necessarily feel lonely as such but you do think that there's a certain amount of of misunderstanding about your position based on if, if for example if you're talking about traditionalist stuff maybe just people think that you're like this uber trad and that you know you're sort of banging that particular drum where you, whereas you seem to have more of an expansive vista on this whole yeah, thing and i think so and the, the great thing for me in writing trivium was finding out that the tradition was far more radical than if you just read um the work of paulo ferrari for for example who perhaps unfairly attacked the traditional view and the the, the big thing of the trivium is it's about three ways of looking at education of teaching if you like um the grammarian the dialectician and the rhetorician and the the sort of separate traditions that came together in the trivium Yes. And the grammarian is the grad grind and should be, you know, saying this is what counts, this is what counts. But then along comes the dialectician and says, well, hang on, what about this? <laughs> and we have this debate and argument is there in the tradition, the tradition of education, of the liberal arts education tradition has the debate at its heart, if you like, between mm. this and bringing this in from another angle. 
here's this. Well, what about this? And that goes right back to the medieval education and before to the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera, you know, um, and before the Greeks, I should think as well. And and in the, the Islamic tradition, in, in lots of other traditions as well. And to me, finding out historically the, the root of the, the trivium and how it remade education again and again and has remade itself again and again um, was fascinating to me. So education is not ever the tradition of, of of the Western, and I'm going to use that term advisedly, the Western, I'm using um, quote marks, um, education tradition has at its heart something which is not a one-way um, filling the pail or whatever, filling the bucket um, at, yes. its, at its heart. It never has had that. Yeah, thank you. That that's fascinating, and and I want to I want to come back to this because because like when when you when you came up with the trivium, um, with the book, I hadn't ever come across it before. Um, and as somebody who's been teaching for at that point for you know ten years or so, and who takes a keen interest in these things, the fact that I hadn't come across you know the probably one of the main ideas in the history of education is itself of of notes and i want to hear about about your arrival um at at your work in around the trivium and since then around curriculum more widely but as i said let's start at the beginning with you um at the start at the, at the beginning of trivium actually there's a lovely um introduction to you as a, as a person but for the benefit of people who haven't uh, read that yet Tell me about yourself and, and and your your own childhood. Your your what kind of what kind of school? That sounds a bit Freudian, doesn't it? <laughs> Tell me about how do you feel about your mother? No, like about um, about school rather than childhood. About about like what kind of a school were you at? What was your experience of school? What was your experience of your later education? Okay, I went to the same school as an ex prime minister, Theresa May. Now. It well, it was the same building, should we say, that she went to. Now she went to Holton Park Girls Grammar School, and I went to Wheatley Park Comp. And when I think she was still there when I would have started in, and I I moved there from. I got there in the year eight, as second year, as we used to call it in the sensible days of before your um and so there i was and we'd moved from another part of the town so we'd moved to this place and i went to this new school and it was chaotic it's one of those typical stories of changing from grammar to comp keeping all those people in charge of the new comprehensive school um who were in charge of the girls grammar school and they'd never met boys before. And they certainly hadn't met boys from then the shot over secondary modern school. And they'd all come together and it was chaotic. They, the, the school was not in, in a good place, shall we say. Now, Theresa May and her ilk, I think were ensconced in the sixth form center that then was, which was an old manor house. Um, and the rest of it, we were on the uh, other site, on the lower school site uh, in, in sunny Wheatley. And um, it was a, a strange place. I was put into bottom set for everything because obviously if I'd moved from another school, 
I had to be put in bottom set for everything. And then after about a term or two, and I, I honestly can't remember, I was immediately moved to top set for everything. But no catch up. No trying to work out what I'd missed. And I just didn't know what the hell was going on in some subjects. I mean, maths and French, for example. I wasn't even, with French. We weren't even doing French in bottom set. We were learning about France. <laughs> um, maths, I, I can't even remember. I just remember all of a sudden I'd moved and I just didn't understand what the hell was going on. And so it was a struggle for me. Um, and I, I rose as best you can in those uh, scenarios. And that is to try and uh, become a character <laughs> all to yourself, you know? So you'd be, you'd have a kid come up to you and say, Oh, you, you think you're hard, don't you? And I didn't think I was hard or anything like that, but of course, rise to the challenge. And, um, all those things that you had to do when you <laughs> go to a new school and, and make yourself into something, you know. So I enjoyed my school days, made lots of great friends, but I didn't enjoy the education. And in the end, I was um, asked to leave um, after a few months in into retake of O-levels, which I had to retake a few to get up to the prerequisite six, I think I ended up with, and left school um at 16 after that and haven't got any A's. didn't um uh, didn't really come together in any way so my, my education i think is um from that perspective one of failure and then i became a neat not in education employment or training you know so hey <laughs> and finally um went to work in a market do you remember there being any any um sense of stigma around that was it was there were you were you were, you, were there other other people in your in in that neat category just for the benefit of listeners that's not yeah sorry you spelled it out didn't you not in yeah. education employment or training yeah no i didn't i didn't see think it was a stigma um i expect <laughs> it was look it was 1979 when i left school um i got a job immediately after that because my dad got me a job at the oxford polytechnic working in the library for a six months on cataloging. But then when that job came to an end, I ended up not doing much of any use. Um, and it was the eight, it, it was then the early Thatcher years. Um, and there were quite a few of us who were not doing anything of any use. <laughs> that was the golden, um, the golden age of the doll. Yeah. And we, we signed on and um, set up rock bands and um, <laughs> you know did 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 all those things. I went to Oxpens, Oxford College of Further Education, to attempt to do some A levels, and that that place had a bar and Hell's Angels in it, which was extremely interesting. <laughs> and so I spent time in the bar. Uh, underage drinking, they seem to encourage it at Oxpens. I don't know quite why. But um, so I Different did a bit, time. There, and then, <laughs> and then, then that sort of fell apart, of course. And um, then I went to work in a market in Oxford Covered Market, and I was selling jokes and whoopee cushions, you know, things like that, fart powder and mm -hmm. and 
on East String, Silly String. Yeah, happy days. That sounds all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, so, and so, this was sort of in, into your late teens, early twenties. Now, are we? Yeah, yeah. Well, you can. I, I look. It's I'm sixty now. It's all a haze. It's all a haze. <laughs> and then at some point, you saw an advert in the face. Yeah, you've done. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so I was a great reader of the New Musical Express. Can I say that the NME is probably the most grammarian publication that <laughs> that ever came out at that time? It was punk rock. This is these are the good stuff. This is bad stuff. You know, disco is bad. Prog prog rock is bad. Very clear what the good music was and what the bad music was. They were the what, grad grinds of of the music scene. They definitely were. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and um, when when the face came out it was a sort of glossier version of the same sort of thing and i i'd start so this must be in the early 80s so 82 83 when it came out something like that and i was reading that and then there was an advert in there for a course called cultural studies at northeast london polytechnic which is it's, as, quite, it's, it's hard to imagine that advert being in the face. It's, 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 yeah. The face was all like sort of fashion and but that, like, uh, yeah, but they took a popular culture sort of angle to it. So yeah. are you this sort of person? Are you interested in these sorts of things? Yeah. Right. Okay. So cultural studies does seem like a good fit. I get it. Okay. And um, I, I thought, well, I can't stay doing what I'm doing. And by that time I was selling double glazing. Um, door to door. Mm, that's brutal, isn't it? I've done door to door. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent commission. So if you didn't sell, you didn't eat. You know that sort of thing. Yeah, and lots of doors slammed in your face. Yeah, but lots opened. I mean, it was it, again. It was fun, but I didn't fancy being a, a double glazing salesman for the rest of my life. No. And so I thought this sounded interesting, and it would get me out of my part of Oxfordshire. And into the big smoke into London, you know, which would be exciting. So I went along from to Stratford in East London and to an, it's an old cigarette factory that they'd converted into one of the precincts for um, North East London Poly and went along there for an interview and they offered me a place. I couldn't believe it without A-levels. Mm, and without having to do a foundation course without foundation that's interesting and on a mature students grant 24 i was then so i got a full grant full fully paid and look they took a risk on me they knew my education wasn't great and i i hadn't been educated well if you like or i wasn't particularly academic you know because i'd never been tried out academically really they took a risk and they said, you know, it's a risk. <laughs> they told me in no uncertain terms, but thank God they did really because, and this, oh, you know, this gives me my cynicism about um, exam grades and things like this, that there's always, right. always a way with anyone, you know, and um, yeah, it seems very limiting, doesn't it? To, 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 to have that. I've, there's something that I've always just sort of intuit. Like when I was at A-level college, I just in, that intuitively just dropped out of the A-level race. There just seemed to be something so sort of just desperate and sort of like, I, I don't know, there's something about the, the, the competition for, for A grades and for, for select number of 
of university places. And I, I remember looking at the UCAS book and flicking through it and just thinking, I don't know what any of this stuff is. Like, how can I make an informed choice at this age on whether I do or do not want to do electrical engineering or microbiology or any of the other hundreds of things that are on offer? I just it's just too much too soon. I was just like, I just need to get out of this town and travel and just take my time. And there's, there's, we just have this really weird race through that with with like as you say, using exam grades as the as the criterion. And evidently, you know, if if like, there's somebody like yourself, or there's countless examples of people, many of whom I've spoken to on the podcast, of people who had a terrible time at school, who left feeling like a failure, who on some level still feel like a failure, like decades later, that that sort of that stain hasn't quite been cleansed yet, even though they've become very successful in other ways. It just seems like, the, the, yeah, that, that selection system is predicated on on um on on an untruth on the, on the sense that you can reliably measure the worth or the future potential or the or the academic potential of somebody based on what they can do at this particular point in time yeah there is that <clears throat> but there there's also the fact that i was you know probably not in any state whether it's you know internally i felt fine and all this sort of stuff but i, I don't think i was necessarily the best person to employ <laughs> or or put it in, in a, a brain surgery course or something like that you know uh -huh. there there are certain places i wouldn't put myself i, I was a a dosser and proud of it you know loved it <laughs> i think the other thing is is being being at oxford town right was seeing oxford gown Yes, and and very much uh, in the seventies, eighties. I was, you know, born in Oxford in sixty two, so right the way through. Grew up at a time when when I saw education as very class based, as something that the the posh people do. And I'm not sort of putting myself out as some sort of working class hero because I'm not. You know, my my mum was a teacher. My dad works at the Polytechnic. So, th so there's an education thing going on in the family as well, mm. um, but uh, the the snobbery and elite that I was surrounded by. I mean, the 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 t I remember once we going went into Oxford for May morning. You know, when six o'clock in the morning on May Day, mm -hmm. they they have all the pubs are open and. You know, so us wasters. <laughs> oh, really? Course, I've not heard of that tradition. Of course, get down to. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, there's a choir singing on the top of Magdalen College Tower, and and we don't. You never hear it, but <laughs> but going through there, and I remember just and there's quite a crowd of us, and we got pushed against these people in dinner jackets, students, you know, who'd been at a ball, a ball gowns, or the, what do you call ball wear, dinner. I don't know evening wear evening wear so they've been up all night at this thing and we got pushed against them in this and this bloke sort of pushed me back and then sort of brushed off his jacket ah. you know and things like that so little things like that and someone uh, and uh, someone introduced me at, at some pub or something and said and this is Martin and he's 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 from Oxford he went to Oxford or something like that and this bloke said, oh, which college? I said, I didn't go to college here. I, I was born here. And he went, oh, and walked off. Yeah. 
I mean, just little things like that. I mean, I, I can reel off loads of them and, you know, uh, but I'm not going to bore you with my, my chip on my shoulder. Yeah, well, I mean, it's such a massive problem. I'm I'm speaking with Melissa Ben soon. Yeah. Um, on the podcast, and I've been reading. Say hi to her from me. Oh, do you know her? I do. Right. I've I've read reread School Wars recently to prepare for it, and people aren't aware. It's a really interesting book that was written around about 2010, just when the coalition government came in, and it was it's sort of an account of essentially the battle over over like England's schools, mainly England, England and Wales, or I don't know, it's all changed, isn't it? The way that the country's been divided up educationally. Um, but, um, and she was just talking, you know, she was talking very explicitly about private education. And she was just saying like, let's be, let's just be perfectly frank about what this does. It perpetuates and, and deepens social divide. Um, and inequality and you know we talk about all of this emphasis that there's been in the last sort of 12 years or so especially since the education endowment foundation was established around closing the disadvantage gap and, and equity of outcomes and what have you and nobody's really talking seriously about the fact that like structurally the system is just you know like that that's such a tiny degree of freedom that we have to do anything about closing closing the, the inequality of outcomes when we have this unbelievably divisive education system that as you say like some people who go through that thing that they're a breed apart like they they try to brush you off their off their gown because it's like ooh i just touched like a common person and like <laughs> what a what a problem that is and like Anyway, it's a bit of an aside, really, but um... no, I think it's it's an interesting one because you you talk about the the disadvantage gap or the advantage gap. I mean, there's if you keep educating everyone, then that's going to remain. Yeah, you've you've actually got to stop educating <laughs> those of the uh, well-to-do classes, if you like. You, you you have to stop educating them if you want to bring up equality through education through education there are other ways of doing it but if it's just education itself you have to do that because education does advantage people who have an education without a doubt um but whether it does in terms of society um if you educate everyone then of course the the gap is going to remain mm. because you're giving everyone and it, then on top of that like you say you take a smaller elite from that and give them an even more advantaged education, <laughs> then yeah, it's it's uh, makes it more difficult. But um, yeah, it's a it's I've got this huge um, snobbery about education, so I'm I'm leaving school. I'm going into working in marketing. I'll call it marketing, knocking on doors, selling double glazing, <laughs> uh, um, and then I've ended up in. Northeast London Poly, which you know, it's it's in East East London. It's it's a grimy place, and it's doing cultural studies, which is a bit a bit out there, a bit lefty. I was a complete lefty, very lefty, mm -hmm. um, and had a great time for three years uh, at uh, Nelp Nelp. So cry for help, Nelp, as it was called. When I left it, it would change its name <laughs> to University of East London. 
or no, it, it, no, that's all right. I, it, it, get it right. It changed its name as I was leaving to Polytechnic of East London from Nelp to Pell. And then within a year, it became UEL mm -hmm. um, because they were all changed to universities or something like that. I think, yeah. I think it was something like that. My, my, yeah, I was at UNL. So I was, right. what was the North London Poly and then became, we used to call it the University of No Learning. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> what were you doing? I I um I initially signed up to do microbiology, ah. um, but I didn't really know what it was. To go back to that UCAS thing, I was like, isn't it small biology? Exactly. I was just like, this is all just so small, like it's pointless. <laughs> and I, I was in like a week of lectures. I was like, this is ridiculous. Why did I choose? I didn't even. I don't think I even knew what it was when I, I had been on a I had been on a on a biology field trip during my A levels to some, I don't know, some Liverpool University where somebody said microbiology is like the future. This is where all the, you know, the money's going to be made and this is where the technology is going to go. This is the new frontier. And so I just thought, okay, fine, I'll put that. Um, but then within a week, I was like, this is ridiculous. And so I changed to um, biology and psychology. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And is, um, was microbiology the future? I, I imagine that some microbiologists would, would tell you that it is. I mean, it was I mean, their future, clearly uh like the mrna vaccines um uh -huh. i guess that would fall under the category of of microbiology they proved to be quite useful and important i thought that was all bill gates and uh injecting people with uh with bio with bio trackers yes indeed let's not go down <laughs> that rabbit hole so <laughs> Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying this conversation with Martin and would like to express that in some way, you can, if you wish, become a patron of the podcast in return for various benefits. At the basic level, Rethinker, you'll gain access to a searchable transcript of every episode to date. So if you're a reader as well as a listener, or if there's a particular bit of any conversation that you'd like to listen back to afterwards, you can search and find it really easily using some amazing software called Otter this might be for you. At the next level up, Fear Killer, you'll receive access to the transcripts and you'll also receive a PDF of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about self-regulated learning I wrote with my amazing friend Kate McAllister. Of this book, Dylan William wrote, I don't know of any other book that provides such clear guidance on how to harness the common elements of learning across the curriculum. Highly recommended. And Mary Myatt wrote, one of the most original pieces I've read in a long time elegantly sets out the case for learning to learn. So, if you'd like to find out how to teach children and young people, and adults for that matter, how to become more confident, proactive, self-regulated learners, this may be of interest to you. And at the highest level, self-regulator, you get the transcripts, you get the book, and we will also throw in access to our three-part online course, Self-Regulated Learning Superpowers, which is worth 99 of your earth pounds, yours for a mere, I think it's five pounds a month, the highest level. So if you'd like to learn about three self-regulated learning superpowers, metacognition, self-regulation, and oracy, this may well be of interest to you. To sign up or to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, if you'd like to make a one-off donation to the podcast rather than becoming a monthly patron, you can buy me a steaming mug of herbal tea by visiting buymeacoffee.com 
forward slash repod. Again, that's R-E-P-O-D. You can also support the show in other ways by leaving us a glowing review on iTunes, by sharing an episode with a friend or sharing a link and some positive energy on a social media platform of your choosing. Or if you prefer to message me privately, please feel free to do that also. All such contributions and nudges, however great or small, are massively appreciated and help keep the show on the road, as it were. Finally, if you're enjoying this episode and you'd like to keep the conversation going, I heartily recommend that you join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network alongside 850 current listeners to the podcast. So if you haven't done so already, please feel free to join us for free at rethinking-education.mn.co or you can download the Mighty Network's app and search for Rethinking Education. We now have daily posts, almost daily anyway, and the community is really starting to come to life at the moment. So do sign up and get involved. It really is much lovelier and more life-affirming than any other edu platform I have yet to come across. Now let's get back to part one of this fascinating two-part conversation with Martin Robinson. So, so, so you got on with cultural studies, did you? Yeah, I loved it, and I loved it because it was subversive, and um, and also I liked. I mean, I've always liked arguing with who I'm with, shall we say? So I like being subversive in the subversiveness of something else. So there were things you could disagree with and and argue with, and it was it because it was a newish discipline, if you like. Um, and and funny enough, they 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 um, have a sort of history of where it came from, and sort of start it with the work of Matthew Arnold, and going through F. R. Leavis and people like that, and then Raymond Williams, and then Stuart Hall, and you, you have this up to Paul Gilroy now, and and um, Terence Eagleton, Terence Terry Eagleton, various others, you know. So you've got this this really interesting diverse group that sort of hang together because of the word culture and discussions about what it is and and how it works and and whether it's important or not yeah okay i was about to ask what is cultural studies but mm. yeah, i think that you've just given a, a, a good answer um it's a, a study of these thinkers um around culture but but obviously quite a very diverse range of people who as you say are hung together like people like Bourdieu and what have you. Yeah, um, it the it's it obviously was quite left wing. It was very Marxist mm-hmm. um, in in a lot of its thinking. Uh, there were three elements to it at Northeast London Poly at the time, and that was popular culture, literature, English literature, and philosophy. And you would work in one of those fields so i was in the english literature field now if i did it again i'd like to be in the philosophy field to to work it through from that angle um and then there was <clears throat> marxist theory etc cetera, etc cetera. but it was very subversive very marxian um very uh very good for a little lefty like me mm, lots of confirmation bias going on yes too much <laughs> in, in retrospect um and probably why as a discipline it it floundered 
um, in some ways and has gone into other fields, if you like. So a lot of the cultural studies people have now gone on to other other courses and and work in other areas. So such as I think the English literature people mainly have gone into English literature, philosophy, into philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But it still hangs together as an idea on a bookshelf, I think. Mm, yeah. OK. Um, and so and so did you become a teacher quite soon after? No. All right. There's a big I, gap, was there? No, um, I went into marketing. I uh, got a job selling advertising space for Marxism today. There's a contradiction for you. I love that. Wow. <laughs> so that, that, that you know, I was the capitalist wing of <laughs> the CPGB. And <laughs> having having a great time. The first advert space I sold for it was um, Sinead O'Connor album. So that that was the first thing. And when I left there, they gave me the the picture of Sinead that went into the inside front cover of Marxism Today. Had great time there. <laughs> <laughs> you like? It. Yeah, amazing. But it's, it's, it's this. It's this has gone on through my life. That you know the 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 strange sort of living in two worlds at once stuck between two stools yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that that was great fun and and again good people um had a great time and and being in the cpgb the communist party of great britain they would pay me every every week or every month i can't remember i think it's every week a check with cpgb on it so communist party of great britain signed by the the um the powers that be um and in cynthia street um near near um smithfield market mm -hmm. and so great great breakfast i seem to remember and but you had to do an hour a week on the door and letting all these luminaries come in to use mostly to use the communist party library which was on the ground floor so you'd meet um ep thompson um you know all these these very great names um vanessa redgrave mm -hmm. you know i mean all the these left-wing luminaries would come in and um yeah i had a great time there great time there and then i was headhunted to sell advertising space for the guardian and i turned up to a meeting in my best woolen cardigan <laughs> this guy in a suit <laughs> looked at me and thought you're not what we're looking for <laughs> <laughs> i was very very uh dressed in a sort of downside way I, I didn't wasn't interested i didn't want to do sell advertising space for the rest of my life no I and, can see why. and that's when i decided to apply for a pgce at goldsmiths right okay and, and you became a drama teacher Became a drama teacher as part of the cultural studies course. We had set up a a theatre company, and we started. I, I wrote some plays, goodness sake, and some other people wrote some plays, and um, we did. Uh, we set up a, a a drama group and things like that, and it just seemed a lo logical extension of my hobby, which was am dram basically doing um doing uh drama teaching and uh they let again thanks to the pgc course being nice and saying okay you're not formally drama but you have enough drama experience 
come and do our PGCE. Yeah, you're welcome. And mm. I did so drama PGCE with four weeks of English because they said you're never going to get a job teaching drama. You'll have to do drama and English because there's no drama jobs like that. You have mm. to be two subjects at least. And so that's what happened. So again, I'm just following my nose, if you like, into seeing where I could go next. And that was that was fun. That was eye opening. Yeah, it's a great subject, drama. Hey, it's something that I I sort of overlooked. I I was naturally interested in it as a kid. I remember once standing on a rainy football field, and it just seemed so pointless. All these kids just chasing this football around. And I was in a school play at the time, and I can remember just thinking, I just want to be doing that. But but I didn't have the wherewithal. Equally as pointless, by the way. I mean. <laughs> Well, you you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I still do bits of drama. I'm in a band, and we do we do rock operas. Um, oh and my I, god, you sound like I, Genesis or something. I, yeah, it is. It's ridiculously <laughs> proggy and uh, it's a political sort of psychedelic sci-fi rock opera type thing. Um, but but I love it, and I get a lot out of it. Um, you know, just the, the 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 spirit of collaboration and of problem solving that comes together in the final weeks before a performance, and you suddenly find yourself in a car with four people that you didn't know like three weeks ago, and you're all off on some mad mission to like whatever collect things okay, or to just, take photos. You've just thrown in collaboration and problem solving. You see, and uh, immediately <laughs> the hairs on the back of my neck go. <laughs> Right, we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. I'm gonna find out why you <laughs> like that. And so there's a bit if we could skip ahead here. So so to curriculum revolutions as we're at the start That's of your skipping ahead a lot, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. but it, it's skipping back again as you'll see. So it's the 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 first paragraph, of the introduction. It says, "Gone are the days when a teacher could turn up on a Monday morning, check the newspaper, choose a couple of articles, and photocopy them, ready for each child to do some work on." Gone are the days of a drunken chat in the colleague with a pub that became a whole new scheme of work, photocopied and ready for people the next day. Also gone are the days of the head of department suggesting to the newly minted teacher, as happened to me when I began to teach English in a secondary school, see what's in the stock cupboard, find something that you like and just basically crack on. Yeah. You know, so so it was a totally different age, wasn't it? You were given huge amount of freedom and license to just take this wherever you wanted. And to, and this comes back to, I suppose, my education experience as a kid as well, that I was taught like that. It was the down to the particular eccentricity of the teacher, perhaps that, that would take you in certain directions until it got to exam classes. But but the rest of the time, you, they were free to teach, and I was free to teach what I liked, really. Um, and when you get to parents evening, it's quite interesting. I've tried this as a parent to um, particularly to teachers of English who are teaching key stage three, <laughs> who aren't subject experts like myself. Mm. I wasn't a subject expert, but you ask them a particular thing about English as a subject. As parents ask me, how you know, my, my child finds it difficult to read. What are you doing to help them read? And you say, oh, well, um, I'm giving some books. And uh, and you sort of, well, I don't quite know what I'm doing. And the the ability to to improvise your way through is all very well. But these kids in front of you actually need a good education. 
And I'm not going to use the idea of a doctor, you know, doing the same thing because it's it's not a it's not a reasonable uh, <laughs> example of what a teacher's like. But certainly, if you're talking about reducing the gap, if you've got a lot of teachers who are making up as they go along and having a great time and being mm. creative, the kids are losing out something. And, and what the Curriculum Revolutions book is about is how important it is, and I'm going to use the C word now, that teachers collaborate mm -hmm. in terms of what they're teaching, why they're teaching it, how they're teaching it. Because the ideas you're imparting take more than one teacher, more than one year, more than one lesson to learn. And it needs to be joined up in some way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can see why the what the rationale was for um was it it sort of started with with um I always forget the guy's name, the Rus the Ruskin speech in 76. Jim Callahan. Cal was it Callahan? I was gonna say yeah. Callahan. Um the Ruskin speech, the, the, the sort of the secret garden of education, that it was a bit like the Wild West and that maybe there needs to be a bit more structure um, in terms of sequencing what's going on. We, we're going to come on to that, but I just thought it was interesting to flag at this point. And so so you became a, um, a drama teacher. It sounds like you were teaching a bit of English as well. And then is this when when did your thinking around curriculum start to sort of to 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 move up a gear if you like and and what was the inception of your of your sort of um embrace of the the trivium where did you first come across the trivium how did that begin for you okay so very quickly on on curriculum um because drama has always been outside the national curriculum because drama is thought of as a rather again lefty subject um it, it's it has a strange history that's not from the art form but is from a group of english teachers who came together and set up the idea of drama and education inspired by freire etc etc so it's got this sort of strange place that it's not quite an art form it's it's a pedagogical tool quite a lot of the time um and we could teach it in the way we wanted even more so because we were outside of the national curriculum and we were also, in terms of examinations, just teaching CSEs at first, you know, um, and then GCSEs sort of took them over. And uh, we it was quite a creative subject in terms of, well, it's grading for a start, because a lot of it was you're grading people's work that was practical rather than written. So... <laughs> A lot of it was was um, creating stuff all the way through. So, so you made your own curricula. So, my interest in curriculum was has been there because I've always created my own curriculum, my own way of working, my own style. And then, as a head of department, bringing people in, having to communicate it to them, and say, "Well, this is this is the way we do it here. This is the way we teach drama here." And um, and it began, it became an oppositional point because I became more into the idea of theatre rather than as an art form, rather than drama as a pedagogical tool. So I was on a, a side of an argument there again, trying to trying to uh, find my place within that. But uh, I then became an advanced skills teacher. I became a and then moved into leadership and was given 
curriculum roles in in school leadership if you like and it wasn't till i was in my 40s that i came across the trivia and i'd been doing some work for the qca the qualification and curriculum authority mm-hmm. and i just fell into this one and i won't bore you about how about creativity and i was working on creativity and i was involved with ken robinson various others no relation by the way ken robinson but anyway um and doing some work with the qca on creativity and its assessment um and i got to this point of thinking well none of these things are really satisfactory what the what they're trying to do here and what the new sort of rising govite agenda it became at that sort of time the the government that might get elected to come in with their more traditional views uh is how do you balance these two different things going on and i came across the trivium now how did i come across the trivium i think it was uh, it's a very uh, it was either the dorothy l sayers article dorothy l sayers um has an article you can look it up called on google you can google it the lost tools of learning and i think it was that article i'm not entirely sure but it's a speech she did in the 1950s at oxford university funnily enough and saying that we have that teachers are working too damn hard (laughs) that um basically we're not educating kids properly and what came I came across here was the way of trying to balance the need for knowledge, the need for teaching people stuff and the same time getting them to think about that stuff. And it seemed to me a really interesting way to, to um, enliven a school curriculum in sixth form um, that needed some sort of enlivening, if you like. And that's when I started talking about it on Twitter. That's when Ian Gilbert came across my stuff and invited me to do a book and I could take voluntary redundancy at that time and I took voluntary redundancy and wrote the book in about a year and a half of being in the British Library and stuff like that I can't remember what was the trigger the trigger I think it was I I I can't remember I, I it'll come to me it'll come to me Right. Okay. Thank you. So, so I just looked up that that piece that you're writing. It was an address by Dorothy Sayers um, at Oxford University in 1947. Yeah, that's right. So she was an author of both nonfiction and fiction, um, and and so so yeah. So she writes about this. The the syllabus. She talks about a syllabus from the Middle Ages, which was yeah. supposed to um, be the object and the right order of educative process. And so just for the benefit of listeners, because if they're, if they're new to this as an idea, so I use Dorothy's um, explanation here. So the syllabus was divided into two parts, the trivium and the quadrivium. The second part, the quadrivium, consisted of subjects, and we can set those aside for now. Um, but the, she says that for her, the most interesting thing was the composition of the trivium, which preceded the subject-based bit. And this consists of three parts, as you mentioned earlier, grammar, dialectic, 
and rhetoric. So can you, I know you, you touched upon this earlier, but can you just recap, um, just like, let's, let's take this as a Trivium 101. What is grammar? Yeah, it's, now, <clears throat> if you take it back to the medieval sense, it's, it's, bear in mind that these words have changed meaning over the centuries. Mm. But grammar, the easiest way to say it in two words is foundational knowledge. Um, so what do you have to know to navigate that subject well? To have a good foundation that can then lead you on to other things. Mm -hmm. Dialectic is debate, argument, dialectic, putting one thing, comparing, contrasting, one thing up against the other thing, experimenting. And rhetoric is communication, but in, in, a, in a strict sense, it has its own grammar. <laughs> Um, and the the three come together, if you like, and what what makes them a perfect education is is it marries knowledge, critical faculties. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that, but um, the ability to challenge knowledge, to to find um, to look at it differently, and rhetoric, the ability to communicate your own thoughts about what you've learned, um, and those three things are, are the basis of every subject if you like you you learn the subject you learn to argue within the subject or or to experiment or question or to be critical of in the subject and to communicate within the subject if you like in in whichever way the communication works for that subject so whether it be um whether it be an art form or a science or, or whatever it happens to be and it's the it's Shakespeare learnt this curriculum <clears throat> at Stratford. He was taught the trivium. And there's a, a book by Sister Miriam Joseph about Shakespeare's trivium that goes through his plays um, and takes it apart and, and says where this comes from in the trivium. You know, so obvious dialectic, to be or not to be, that is the question here. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she goes through it in, in more depth than just the three <clears throat> because rhetoric itself is many many things of course as is dialectic yes. as is grammar and within that we have latin grammar and we have the grammar of english english grammar you know there is the grammar that we we know of there the the the, the great finding for me because when I was, I was in the british library finding out all this stuff and then was the finding why what happened to the trivium and when the big sort of moment came about, um, I think after the Renaissance, when the the subjects begin to take over. So the quadrivium was added to, added to, added to. Uh -huh. um, so this a studies, a studio, humanitis. I can't remember the exact, the exact words. Studius, studis, humanitis. I can't remember. Anyway, the, the, the other three subjects, <clears throat> they said, uh, we get rid of those. And that that's when the, the word changed meaning so we get the idea of trivia trivia right it's just trivial it's a waste of time why'd you bother with it so that word meaning changed at that time so again i'm, I'm fascinated by something i love things that are trivial great <clears throat> so you've just made this trivial so that the word changed around that time and, and that's noted in shakespeare and I can't remember where I should have made notes and I could have come up with some lovely things for you about that. 
And so to be clear, do you think that that was that there was some sense in which those three things, this this very idea of grammar, dialectic and rhetoric, that they themselves were deemed to be trivial and therefore inconsequential and that this should just be a become a subject driven subject based curriculum, which is still largely what we have. Right. If you look at a secondary school timetable. It's the quadrivium plus, and there's the trivium yeah. is, is nowhere yeah. to be seen. And I accept, and my argument in in um, trivium twenty one c is that actually these three things remain as the base of each subject still, and they it they just like ta- tacit the or implicit. Yeah, and they're absorbed into the subject. So you you learn stuff, you learn to question stuff, you learn to communicate stuff, and that's kind of it as an academic discipline in in most subjects mm-hmm. if not all subjects and so since the book came out the the, the trivium 21c and um, the, the strap line is preparing young people for the future with lessons from the past mm-hmm. um and then you started to do some consultancy to help schools to to sort of to reorganize their their um curricula to to make that more explicit is that fair to say that you were trying to draw out the 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 trivium within each of their subjects yeah i think so but it's also i mean this is where you get into the the thing about genericism and subject specific work and mm-hmm. tr- i'm trying to say in the, the work i do if you like is that that the trivium can be a way of working for a whole school which actually gives structure to the subjects within that school because you're going back to the roots of all subjects if you like that they're all rooted in in the trivium and you're just doing something you know, there's always this argument in schools but we all we already do this you do already do the trivium that's right but it's revitalizing it by re-looking at it and saying actually have we got the balance right between the three things mm. and um what what happens in a lot of and I think this is where I take it up with Athena, if you like, that the two things a lot of schools are doing at the moment, not all schools by any means, a number of schools is probably a better thing to say, but a number of schools are doing the grammar. Here's the stuff you need to know. And the rhetoric in a limited sense, here's how you communicate it for an exam. And that is it. And the sort of Athena thing is saying, this is not an education. (laughs) This is not a full education. You need the dialectic and you need a richer um, realm of communication. Yeah. And so so you think it's the dialectic that's most often overlooked? Yeah. And even in even in in trivium terms, there is an argument and depending where you look at it, sometimes people call the dialectic part logic or logos yeah and within the trivium there's a there's a trivium within the dialectic itself you know which those three things then become quite interesting as well within within that yeah okay and so so is it possible (laughs) to sort of to 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 give us a an example of what this might look like in, in some of the schools that you've worked in uh, either at primary or at secondary level, just so that because it might sound a bit abstract to people at the moment. Like, like, are there any sort of concrete examples of how, of how a curriculum could be realigned to give more balance between these? I think three? the 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 main thing, and I was starting 
working on this in the early govite times if you like and um, what some schools found helpful was that i was able to bring quite progressive curricula into a space where they could coexist with the traditionalist curricula if you like and to try and find a way of bringing the grad grind and the frary together <laughs> i'm giving two ridiculous <laughs> examples there but trying to to bring those two things into a a creative tension and and th that is a crucial part of it if you like is is to say that knowledge and the questioning of knowledge um live together not in harmony at all but it's how to bring those two things together in some sort of creative tension that um allow schools to teach in a way that can liberate the thinking of the pupils in their in their keep in their keep in their, yeah that'll do in their in care their keep, or, in their care that's the word i was looking for keep <laughs> keep them kids and so 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 <laughs> I'm going to ask again about any concrete examples. Can you are there any are there any departments that you've worked with, for example, like in science or in music or art or something, where you could sort of? Okay, I mean, the first the first step, if you like, at that time was saying that, what do you teach? What are you trying to? I mean, this is like I said, going back. What are you trying to teach? What's the knowledge you're trying to impart? And that in itself was difficult for some schools. What are you trying to teach? Mm. Rather than activity-based lessons. I mean, I was taken in to see some lessons. There was one school um, where the whole lesson was kids wandering around getting information off the wall that the teacher had put information on the wall. And they were doing mm. kinesthetic learning. They were walking around trying to find things up from this. And I'm just like, no, just teach stuff. <laughs> so they remember stuff. So this is the traditional side of me, if you like. Stop trying to sort of fill everything up with activities and start to realize the richness and the excitement that is actually in knowledge. Don't be embarrassed about it. Don't be embarrassed mm. about knowledge. And then the idea of foundational knowledge in that the sequence of knowledge that you put together is important. The narrative of knowledge that you put together is important. The the idea that um, what you teach before and what you teach after is important, that there is a growthful idea behind it. Um, so that that became the to start with, the most radical thing was 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 actually saying that grammar is important what you teach is important um and realizing you know this this seems so obvious now i think because we've gone through the knowledge revolution and now we've got people coming back at it in the other way if you like but saying that this stuff is important so it, in the early days the the most important stuff i was doing was trying to say well, what are you teaching and we would start in the middle of something i don't want to um mention particular schools but there are particular schools who i worked with on on this and we'd start in the middle of stuff and work our way forwards and work our way backwards and trying to get together a curriculum that joined up that made sense that uh 
that had growth within it. And then we looked at how to question that knowledge and how to bring in other knowledges that can can live alongside it and, and can can enter into a dialogue with, if you like, uh, and build I up see. conversational conversational classrooms um, that are conversing not on the skill of conversation, but actually talking about the knowledge they are meant to be learning. Because at that time, again, there was a lot of speaking and listening in English would be single lessons to do, you know, we will debate school uniform and things like that. And I say, no, don't debate school uniform. <laughs> debate Macbeth. You're teaching Macbeth. Debate Macbeth. Well, how do mm. we do that? What do you mean? How do you, you set it up in a way that there is already a controversy that you've got down to that then can feed into that lesson? And then teaching rhetoric and then, you know, teaching Aristotelian and or and or rhetoric and using that as well to give a structure towards essay writing and introducing essay writing and and um bringing this into your teaching not teaching six pointers nine pointers and things like that from day one but teaching essay writing and getting um all subjects to realize that they have a shared interest in in teaching good essay writing if you like and, and use that as a structure for good speaking and every every kid should be able to do a speech in a school every every kid should be able to debate in a school and not on subjects extracurricular subjects like school uniform etc cetera, etc cetera, but actually about the things they are learning yeah i can certainly sympathize with that from um i was a science teacher um, and the way that you talk about like the six pointer, like the, the the hardest at that time anyway, the hard, the longest question on a GCSE exam was six points, and it would be like you know give give three advantages and three disadvantages of a lime quarry or something. So it was pretty dry, and and just uh, just that was it. That was as much as you needed to know about a lime quarry. And apart from that, you needed to know two things about how a nuclear power station worked, and four things about you know force equals mass times acceleration or whatever and there's no depth to any of it and like the, if science is anything it's like it goes deep it goes like to the fundamental mystery at the heart of existence you know um <laughs> and and uh and there was none of that it just like, i often described it it felt like an ocean of of knowledge that was about an inch deep and you just had to cover and there was so much to yeah. cover there was so much um and you could see how the tail was wagging the dog that that because you only had to to, to know X amount about this, the, all of these topics, that that was, that was what the curriculum became. And that's a separate question, but maybe we should alight on it quickly. When you're talking about curriculum work, and, and like recently there was a, a George Monbiot did a Twitter thread where he was talking about the national curriculum and there was, it fluttered a few feathers on Twitter as such, as such things do. And his, his basic point was that was that there's a problem in that, like, because we have a national curriculum, which he was defining as quite narrow, and you could have the debate around whether it's too narrow or not, um, that essentially we've got a homogenous group of minds that aren't able, that aren't diverse enough to be able to think around problems. And so, you know, we're sort of over, over controlling what people can and can't think and, and lots of people took issues with the curriculum because like not everybody has to follow the national curriculum say but if you exchange national curriculum for the gcse spec um for you know for the main subjects that nearly everybody does 
um that that becomes the de facto curriculum doesn't it that's that's sort of the this stuff i was just wondering so my question is like can you do really interesting work around the trivium and around curriculum in key stage four when there's this sort of you're heading towards this tractor beam of the of the um the exam which is going to test you on what the exam board puts in the spec yeah <laughs> no you can and but the the other thing is and this is the problem i come across a lot is the big key stage four is often thought of as a separate part to key stage three or key stage three is thought of as basically doing key stage four but a bit more slowly um so there is a way of building up knowledge if you like that actually works as foundational knowledge that you need to get through the subjects at key stage four you can teach kids how to write an essay you can teach kids about the broad the broad um sweep of a subject if you like to help them navigate what they've then got to do later at key stage four um so if you think of it as and i i draw this shape quite a lot i call it the upside down triangle um and it's not an upside down triangle because it's a triangle and triangles are never upside down but if you draw a triangle with a broad an equilateral triangle with a broad bit at the top and the point at the bottom people say that's an upside down triangle so it's an upside down triangle if key stage three is thought of as the broad bit and gcses are sort of getting us towards the points if you like mm -hmm. then that's kind of getting that relationship right so instead of teaching the gcse atom or whatever it is you start key stage three talking about particles and you know particles energy or whatever it happens to be to to split up the the foundational knowledge of physics Mm -hmm. and when i first did that with a school which was ages ago this was this was in 2014 2013 or something like that 10 years ago um and the teachers said to me but we can't teach particles to um children in our school because it's uh it's too difficult to teach particles to year seven we teach it you know it's more later on that we'd teach particles mm. i say no no of course you can teach it but you obviously make it work for their level of knowledge but you can teach anything to anyone at any level as long as you make well if they if they haven't learned to think about particles it's the most wonderful thing to suddenly learn about in year seven that actually i should think you should learn it earlier than year seven but let's say it's year seven you know here's particles you can't actually touch anything you know there's spaces in between everything. We're all made out of, et cetera, et cetera. And, mm -hmm. and suddenly you've got this, even if you don't complete, and this is the other thing, even if you don't completely understand it, this was it, this was it. Going into lessons, you must learn this by the end of the lesson. Mm. Yeah. And we're going to have a plenary <laughs> to make sure you've learned it. The most damaging thing about seeing each lesson as a one-off, but actually the growthful idea that it takes time to learn complex things so of course particles takes longer to learn than one lesson and you keep coming back to it and, and keep illustrating it in different ways as you come back to it spiral round and come back to it but uh to the the wonder of learning the knowledge of particles you know and or and or is is quite something and of course it doesn't necessarily sink in straight away but knowledge that sinks in straight away is not going to build you much 
It's just mm -hmm. going to be a series of very small snippets, six pointers, and that's it. So to yeah. think of to think of science in, in 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 a way that you traverse across the terrain early on, and then when you get to your GCSE, you've got so much behind you, so much understanding behind you that when it comes down to filling up the GCSE mark paper, paper which you've got to write on, you of course know more about what you're trying to do. Yes. I see. So 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 when you're talking about to go back to that question of like practical um I think that's sort of what we're still talking about. Practical examples <laughs> of We might be um, <laughs> practical <laughs> examples of what like the what this how how to enact the trivium in in a modern day curriculum that that essentially you're asking quite searching questions foundational questions like what are you teaching what is the stuff what is the foundational knowledge for this particular unit of work or in your subject well, say straight away I mean, it wouldn't be unit of work it'd be your subject in the, in the, in the subject what are you saying the, your subject the, is trying to do with your yeah you know, what are you trying to say what are you trying to communicate what are you trying to teach why are you teaching that and what order are you teaching it mm. um you know is that good enough that's the other thing it's a qualitative question are you teaching something because it's easy to get them to go through the exam on this are you teaching them this because it's in the stock cupboard or are you teaching them because it actually enriches their understanding of the subject so mm. so big questions around what is foundational knowledge in this subject what is what we have to learn about and is it good enough mm. questions around quality the big things so 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 there's a there's a quote towards the end of of your second book which we'll come on to in a few minutes um athena versus the machine there's a quote towards the end by amanda spielman um when she wrote a commentary on some um primary and secondary curriculum research and i'll i'll read it out because it links to what you were just saying. She says, a striking conclusion that we have drawn from the findings of this research is that despite the fact that the curriculum is what is taught, there is little debate or reflection about it. There is a lack of clarity around the language of the curriculum. And then she says, it's certainly possible that this ambiguity and lack of shared understanding expose competing notions of what curriculum means across the sector. However, the most likely explanation is that this arises from a weak theoretical understanding of curriculum over time this competence across the sector has ebbed away i was just wondering about that i mean like it it sounds like i mean first of all do you think that it has ebbed away do you think that that people did used to have these rich conversations about curriculum and that we've somehow become deprofessionalized in some sense over time is that just like harking back to a golden age of curriculum conversations that didn't really exist what do you think Right. Um, in, in, if you go back to the medieval days, <laughs> you go back to the Greeks or whatever. You All know. right, you win. <laughs> but at some point there were rich conversations about curriculum, I think. <laughs> um, but the, the examples I've given, you know, of teachers on their own closing the classroom door and teaching their stuff, but down the pub and everything else. But, it, it you know, finding out what they're teaching oh you're teaching this why are you doing that how are you doing that so there's that level of it but the actual thing about what became the curriculum need for this move towards more curriculum work if you like was i think to do with uh, exam exam um league tables 
etc etc that everything became so and, and Ofsted's original thing about just looking at your data and, and that everything became so tied around the examinations that were taken and making sure kids got through that that what became the curriculum was what was in the GCSE and a level mm. and teaching that and then trying to find something to do in key stage three so much so that a lot of people just got rid of key stage three being three years and made it two years yeah all those things and and what deprofessionalized it if you like was everything was tied around exams and getting kids through exams and uh, you know for obvious reasons and and what was deprofessionalized then is in the workplace was that and then on the other side of things was work that I was involved in, funnily enough, with the QCA and all that going on, was um, that the skills curriculum had taken over, and and, and um, so in this is in the the, the pre govite era of the Ed Balls curriculum, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The work there that Mick Waters and various people that got involved in was that subjects became a very small part of the big picture of the curriculum. And we had all these other things that we needed to do, global this, creativity that, collaboration, collaboration this, and all these other things that that um, took over, that we were doing lots of one-off things, um, maths days, science weeks, or whatever it happens to be, in order to tick different boxes um that oh they've done their bit on and, and also whether they were kinesthetic visual or auditory learners or whether we're doing our thinking hats and all these other things that have come so we've gone from that to um a very big focus on exams um that was there in the balls era as well don't forget exams were getting like like soviet union tractors we were doing more and more you know we were getting higher and higher results every year um and all that so i think what it output became more important than input to put it simply mm -hmm. yeah 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 we're, we're getting into the territory of athena versus the machine here i think but before we before we get into that uh, there's a couple of questions that i want to to yeah. to hear your thoughts on the first one which we've touched upon a bit and and this is this is a common theme in all three of the books you talk about this about and it relates to the dialectic i think about teaching the controversy and not shying away, not indoctrinating people into the right way of thinking, but teaching the controversy. Um, I'd like to to hear you expand on that. Um, and and we might look at some particular examples of some sort of hot button issues that, that people <laughs> are getting exercised and, and animated about um, at the moment. Um, and yeah, let's crack that little nut open. Okay. So why is it important to teach to teach controversies? Okay, because um, this this comes back to cultural studies, if you like, and and the idea of what culture is, and 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 also about power and various other things, and free thinking. That the the if you think the object of schooling is to bring up better people, or to bring up um people who think for themselves and those two things are in conflict because better people in north korea <laughs> might be different than my idea of what better people should be you know and to me uh, a liberal education and i'm using that in the terms of a liberal arts education about freedom to think 
and freedom to be the person you wish to be as much as possible within constraints, obviously, then you need to not teach in a way that indoctrinates, but teach in a way that frees up thought. And the way to free up thought is to represent different perspectives, to, to offer different perspectives on things and get people to work their way through the arguments and the controversies that are happening around them now as well as in the past. And uh, anything that is worth teaching, whether it be a book, rather than thinking, this is what you should think about this book, you present, these are the things that people have said about this book. <laughs> you know um and when i was teaching drama and we'd go and see a play we'd look at the reviews of the play from deliberately from a conservative reviewer to a more socialist type re reviewer easily in other words from the telegraph and the guardian <laughs> you know and or various other places uh -huh. and you'd place them together and say this is what this person says let's compare and contrast different arguments for it, in order to get people to think about where people come from when they're presented with this work of art in front of them. Um, and to me, that is vital, whether it be on art, whether it be on culture, whether it be on politics and culture involves all those philosophy, whatever it happens to be, and science and science and maths when it comes to stats, when it comes to graphs and all these other things, you know, there are various, very many areas where the dialectic is important really coming in to see how people use argument to present things that they think about things and why you need to get involved in those arguments from a point of view of empathy for those you disagree with as well as understanding that the way you think about something might not be as solid as you think it is and to try and enable you to think more deeply about the subject if you like to look at it in in a variety of different ways now that becomes controversial when you bring it into areas where people are more settled about things or the powers that be are more settled about things um, but i'm saying it should be in in pretty much all areas so there's a there's a kind of an interesting parallel here isn't there with with debates that play out in in the news and in the so-called culture wars around around neutrality and bias and and um so for example climate change would be one right where where for example teaching and i used to do that when i when i was teaching climate change i remember there was a program on uh years ago on channel four called the great global warming swindle or something um and uh, it was it was just questioning the, some of the the data on climate change and we would sit that alongside the Al Gore film, The Inconvenient Truth, um, and ask the kids to, to to think their way through it and to think about, you know, critiques and, and arguments and counter arguments. And they didn't have the, the requisite knowledge Like meteorology is like ridiculously complicated. So it's it's hard to 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 have a really, really rich uh, conversation but that would be one where i imagine that some some but some people perhaps some listeners would be horrified that i would have done that because they'd be like but like that's not you, you, it creates a sort of a false equivalence to teach the controversy because it overlooks the fact that like 99 whatever percent of scientists are on one side and there are only a small number of people on the other and we had similar things around like the economics of brexit you know in the, in the run-up to the to the referendum yeah. um 
so the, the, it is, you enter into some complicated territory when you start to teach controversies. Yeah, and and I think you said something interesting there about meteorology. <laughs> um, this is where the grammar comes in, that they, they do need to be up to speed by the time they get to there. I mean, I'm interested that my daughter learned about climate change before she knew what climate was. Yeah, right. So, so to me, there's a sequence issue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, straight away. And this is something I say, you know, <laughs> it, it, if you're teaching climate change, you're, t and well, how did she learn it? She learned about making posters. So she's there making posters about climate change. That's not learning about climate. And that's not learning about climate change. Mm. And the posters were saying how, how awful it is climate change. This was that, that to me is, is, is indoctrination. And it's indoctrination with its heart in the right place, I may say. But we don't need to teach kids to make posters about climate change before they've learned about climate and they've then learned about the controversies around climate change, as well as the more settled science. And they also need to know about what is settled science. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, so there are many things out there, especially now that we have got what is sometimes referred to as the wild west of the internet, where, so much information is available far more than it was when we were younger and i'm saying we as I, i'm including you within that even though i know you were younger than me but when we were younger and certainly when i was younger you know the this information would be available to very few people in very few places now it's available to everyone straight away if you happen to go on twitter all of a sudden and so we are we are more susceptible to things that we haven't heard about these you know these these sort of strange things that suddenly um russell brand or david ike or, or, or whoever it happens to be will go on about and it'll be there and people will be trying to suppress it why are they trying to suppress it this is must be something dangerous about it you know and therefore we do need to examine knowledges more carefully mm. and and particularly in areas where there is delicate controversy. And, and this comes down now to things like issues around gender, sex, sexuality, and race and various other things and climate change and COVID or whatever it happens to be. The, the, thing, the burning issues around today, which need you need to realize why there is these arguments going on out there and what are the arguments about so you learn the knowledge around the arguments before you get into involved finding yourself within that argument so first of all why is the argument there where is it coming from and trying to generate more light than heat rather than getting kids involved in right let's debate this <laughs> That's not the way to do it. It's to learn about the debate. Yeah. So to teach to teach the grammar of the debate, if you like, as part of the terrain in which you're in, and then to hone in what these difficult issues might be, how we take them apart, and then to introduce generally the debate in a more sober way. So that, that, that's kind of where I am on that. Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's so important this issue, like that you you mentioned. Um, you know, Twitter and the, the, essentially the way that the culture wars are raging throughout the world and this this sort of increasing intolerance 
that we're seeing where people sort of turn up to debates with foghorns to, to literally drown out their opponents so that they, their voices cannot be heard. And they're not in like in some cases, people are not interested in hearing the view, for for example, from a, a white male person, because they're like, well, you've had your go in like, uh, like running a patriarchy for 200 years. We don't care what you have to say about this issue. You just need to step aside now and let let somebody else take a turn. And um, and things have become unbelievably you were just talk about more more light than heat. There's so much heat and so little light it sometimes feels like this this issue is absolutely raging and people um you know like you were saying like on the one hand the internet is amazing because it has you know all of this incredible information at your fingertips and i'm sure like myself that you've been playing around with chat gpt this unbelievable resource my goodness like what a that, that i can't even find the words that seems to be to be the most disruptive thing that's happened tech-wise in our lifetime and, and a welcome addition right because it's so it does seem to be generally able to to give pretty reliable information and although it says that you know um things are still you know it's a work in progress um but the way that the internet works the way that the way that social discourse works on the internet like the you know who would have thought that a, that a medium that limits you to 280 characters would lead to misinformed you know debate and people talking across each each other um but also because of the way that the algorithms work and that you know it just pushes you towards more and more extreme content and it seems to me that some of the stuff that you're talking about here about the the need to to teach the foundational knowledge and also to teach um you know the the the, the knowledge that underpins how to te- how to take part in a debate there also seems to be something dispositional here you use the word empathy to to, to treat your opponent with empathy to understand the other p- person and it sort of sounds dare i say it something close to character education that you're yeah, trying yeah. to develop people oh you just growled <laughs> <laughs> no no <laughs> you're because, trying to develop no. people who are dispositionally more open-minded no no no, no? i uh... Now, as soon as you start getting into the idea of character education, let's let's say mm. character education, very much about um, developing empathy, let's say, and saying this is an empathetic person. That's a good person. The good person. What makes a good person? Well, part of what makes a good person is the society in which they're in that accepts what a good person is. And I do a talk. I'm, I'm not saying that people should be nasty or horrible, but I'm going to give you an example of a horrible person doing something really useful. And this this story is about when the London Bridge attacks happened. Oh yeah, and and we had the guys wandering around with with wandering around, running around with knives strapped to their wrists, and ran into Borough Market. And we're slashing people. And in one pub, outside the pub, there's one person at this particular pub who went against them and attacked them. And this guy was a, a typical, and I'm going to give you this as, as a, again, in inverted commas, a typical Millwall fan. And he was, he attacked them and the, the reasoning why he attacked them and various things, he was not the, um, shall we say, the most, um, he, he'd had a record of racist attacks and things like that himself. 
But at that particular moment, his character of um, of someone who is violent <laughs> outward was the most useful person in that pub at that time because he went out and attacked them and got cut himself on various uh, himself quite a, quite a few times and yet he managed to do it and in another pub there was another guy came out who who um with a with a fire extinguisher and and various other things going on i think and you know no oh, tables fire extinguisher was the the other attack on the other side of London Bridge a few years later. Was it someone who got like a, a whale tusk? Yeah, that was a different attack. That was, was that on the one? north side near. Um, oh, right. Near, the, this was the the attack a year or so before that. Right. Um, there was four of them rampaging. That's right. Through um through the Borough Market, they come up in a van and run people over on on the bridge, I think, and then run out of the van and come into Borough Market. Now, in other words, there is the thing about characters who you might find not to work within a character education way, who become very useful at certain points. And they, they all of a sudden the world around you changes and you realize that actually you need someone who's really quite violent <laughs> to protect you. And this is a, a nasty way of looking at it. But in other words, it takes different characters to make the world. It takes different, you know, this thing you were talking about earlier, about having people who are different to to make up different to make up a humanity, if you like, that we have different ways of seeing things. We don't want everyone to be the same, George Monbiot. So character education, the idea that we should all be like this, that we should all behave in this way, that we should all have this good character, is is something that I would question. And the one play that does this really well is by Bertolt Brecht, and it's called The Good Person of Shetswan. And the three gods come down from heaven and try to find a good person in the world. <laughs> they want to find a person of good character, and they can't, because everyone is damn well flawed. And in the end, they see this one woman who's a prostitute. They say, well, you'll do. <laughs> we know you're flawed, but, you know, you, you'll, we'll give you the award anyway. And... It's it's that kind of thing. I've got a huge scepticism about people saying this is what a good character is. And a lot of schools that do this, and one of them is Eton, for example. I would wish Eton to look at all its people that it's brought up over the years and say, is our character education working? Is it good <laughs> enough? <laughs> is it something of... we can be proud of? You know, um, I don't think it works and I don't think it's morally correct. And I don't think it's possible for humans to be molded in that way, unless we take a North Korean view and indoctrination begins to take over. And then that has its problems in different ways. Mm. Interesting. So, so there was, um, the, a previous guest has pointed out that there's, there's been, I don't know the statistics, but apparently there's been a lot of, a lot of quite high profile murderers who were um, from that particular school. Um, I don't <laughs> well, know whether. Is that on their character education list? You know? Well, right. Um, to but murder. <laughs> but you're, you're sort of describing character education as though it can only be done in the form of indoctrination into a certain mold of what what constitutes a good person yeah, yeah i think um, so and, but uh, but i don't know if that like i don't know if that's necessarily the case like like you could you can sort you can for example like, like do do you think that you that we should teach stoicism 
say no but then you get into the virtues and and i I cover this in in trivium as well so we say um things like whether it's courage or, or whatever you know i certainly think we should have experiences at school which challenge us that that enable us to live a full life if you like um and to come across ideas and thoughts that we might say well stoicism that's quite interesting or or this that and the other and finding out about whether we find something good for us but not everyone is going to be a stoic and not everyone is necessarily saying these things are the right things and ways of living but of character and i'm avoiding the word good character of character as a whole of ourselves within the world in which we're in as well and i don't think these are things that are just individualized it's it's about the world in which we are we are living in as well then of course we should bring out moments where we are tested that we are thinking about ourselves within that moment etc cetera, etc cetera. so character in in drama um if you go to a, a play or a film they say what what is a complex character a character is interesting to play is the character that has the most choices and the most important choices and and they have to make this choice or this choice you know and classically you know with the the devil and the angel are whispering in your ears you know <laughs> you want to make the good choice or do you want to make the bad choice and sometimes mm. you know and things like that they come up to test us and the most interesting lives if you like are the ones who have the most choices in front of them whichever way they choose to go is up to them i don't think character education works but giving people the opportunity to live a full life is different that's not a character education but it's certainly a, a, a an education that allows you to grow in terms of your experience in the world Mm -hmm. and to to find yourself able to make more choices now advice around you and all those things of course that's a different thing but giving people the chance to be empathetic is different than teaching about empathy yeah i don't think that we should have empathy lessons and i think that well that's the way it is that's the way a lot of character education is they're sat there doing education about this is an empathy class and here's here's the the what's it center of character education here's our here's our powerpoints and here's our books and off we go <laughs> you know yeah it's, but it's, i, I uh, don't but think that about... it necessarily has to be that way like the, that... but do the duke of edinburgh course or something like that do a duke of edinburgh course and all those things um or do it do a drama club or 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 do these things which and or be, climb a mountain um whatever it happens to be go caving all these experiences a broad curriculum to come at one with yourself to find out what you are in these different situations at that time of your life and learn from a wider experience i think that's that is what and no 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 diary to write afterwards and tick boxing just call it a full education I feel like we need to have a whole separate podcast just about this question because it's yeah we can it's do. such a huge have a debate topic. with someone have a debate. I was with... thinking that I was I, I was this I listened to a post- podcast recently with a school who have 
who've, who've, I think you sort of referenced, I think it's called the Jubilee Centre for. I character. didn't mention the Jubilee Centre. I said the centre, and it might we be. We all there. knew what you meant. I, <laughs> I deliberately didn't say. <laughs> so there's this, a, a teacher who who's as as um enacted the lots of the principles of the Jubilee Center and she gives a good account of herself um mm. and the the work that they do. I'd love to have a debate around this because it seems like if I may it seems a bit straw manish to sort of to say that 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 the only form of character education is this indoctrination into into a single mold yeah, of a I person. Think it, 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 I, th I think that there are many other forms of it that I, I, I share your I share your problems with that. And I've seen places that have got resilience lessons, for example, and it's ludicrous. Grit lessons. But and 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 this actually links it. Yeah, right. This links into. <laughs> This links into the other question, which links to this, which is like, is this is this why you have such this sort of what feels like quite hardened scepticism around the teaching of communication skills and creative skills? That, that is, is it is it essentially this same um, this same problem that you have that you that we're trying to mold people into a into a, into an approved human shape? There is there is that, and that's a very important part of it, and it, uh, the other. Um, example of this is Winston Churchill, who was the most obnoxious, disgraceful human being that actually was exactly what you needed at a certain time, you know, and Attlee said he was the greatest of our time, you know, um, at, at a particular moment, sometimes obnoxious characters are quite useful um, and, and serve their time. In other words, a character isn't just contained within the skull and skin of a human being it's actually something that exists at a certain time in a certain place yeah and and with others and we are, we our characters are made and and change and that's the other thing it changes we change over time you know never step into the same river twice all that you're not the same person it's not the same river yeah so things change in that way so that in terms of character education is is that that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about philosophy it doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about ways of living and what and and other other moral questions and and shouldn't be faced with the the debates around these things but the debates around them are just as important rather than saying here's a, here's a moral lesson you must live like this this is the way to live your life um so there's that communication skills yeah, I teach rhetoric. I teach rhetoric. I think it's important to learn to communicate well, eloquently, beautifully, whichever way you might you might want to think of it. The communication skills that came around with personal learning and thinking skills, and and other things around that time, um, and since, and collaboration, and all these things have two two issues, two major issues. One of which is the quality of what is being learnt wasn't based on anything particular in lots of cases wasn't based on anything beyond mere lessons here's a lesson that's going to make you collaborate here's a lesson that's going to make you creative how you know the creative lesson was here's a paper clip how many uses can you think for it but and the second thing is the transferability issue which even when you look into transferability it has to be taught explicitly mm. how you transfer a skill from one domain to another domain mm. if indeed it can be done 
you have to learn about it in a domain specific way and in domain. So even essay writing, you need to look and be taught explicitly how you move from English to history essay writing skills. You know, you have to learn that explicitly. You can't just rely on learning how to write an essay in English and it'll turn up somehow in history. It doesn't work like that. And the same, whether it be creativity and or, and or, and or. And I learned a lot of that working with the QCA on how to assess creativity. And straight away, no one knows what creativity means. They sort of think they do. But when you come to assess something, you really have to give the parameters to make a fair assessment yeah. and a rigorous assessment. Now, as soon as you can't do that, you realize that people are saying, well, it's risk taking. Well, it's this, that and the other, you know, and they had all these sort of things below what creativity was. Then creativity is risk taking. It's collaborating. It's this, that and the other, whatever it happened to be. Well, creativity is not necessarily those things. There's no evidence that it's those things. Character is another one. These are very loose terms. So when you start to say that this is important education, it doesn't mean it's not important to discuss what these things might be. But actually, I discovered, if you like, that rather than creativity, creating is more important. Create something. <laughs> Don't learn about creativity, which was then taken over mainly by business people with their sort of we need creative people. No, we don't. We need creativity in our in business. So therefore, you should be teaching creativity. You can't do it. You can teach people to create things in certain subjects, in certain ways, in certain times mm -hmm. and creating. And then perhaps you could say, right, when you go into business, is there anything we can explicitly use of what you do musically and or and or in this way? Perhaps there is. So, you know, we need to make more things in school if you want to teach people to create things. Teaching creativity is too nebulous. It doesn't mean anything. I can I can see that, and I share your concerns. You mentioned the the PLTS framework there, the personal yeah. learning and thinking skills. And for the benefit of anyone who hasn't come across this, this was a framework um, of sort of like descriptors, wasn't it? That sort of it was like fitted on a single page. There were these six headings, and one was like creative thinker or effective participator and global citizen. Was that one of them? Yeah, things like that. I mean, yeah, right, yeah, and and you you mentioned this in in trivium. You describe it as the language of the committee and the bureaucrats, and and that's what we found as well that it was very managerial. And to link back to what you mentioned earlier about genericism, it was as though you could teach these things in the absence of a subject discipline, of a subject base, of a knowledge base that you could just become an effective, you know, critical thinker in the absence of of knowing what you're talking about, <laughs> for example. Yeah. But there are other things. So, so are you familiar with the Oracy skills framework? Have you come across and, it? And so here we go again. So if we talk about, I mean, here we go again, but it, it's Oracy skills mm -hmm. and teaching rhetoric. Let's just go with those two different things. Yeah. For a start, Oracy skills or teaching rhetoric. Now teaching rhetoric, you learn certain methods the knowledge yeah. of how to communicate. Now, if you call it oracy skills, I wonder why it's not called rhetoric. So, so rhetorical techniques, as it's called, uh, as it's described, it's like features within. The, so, so for the benefit of listeners, there's this there's this thing that was created by 
some of my um, colleagues at the University of Cambridge and in conjunction with a school um, in London with School 21. And they created this framework because they wanted to have a more, like, because oracy is often dis, dis, like, basically sort of used as a, as a synonym for speaking and listening, as though it's those two things. And of those two, listening is by far the sort of the, the weaker of the two. People often think of oracy essentially as the performative aspects of spoken language, of, of giving a speech or taking part in a formal structured debate. And the oracy skills framework breaks down spoken language and communication into these four categories there's physical stuff there's linguistic stuff there's cognitive and then there's social and emotional and just to give some examples so in, in, in physical you've got things like voice projection clarity of pronunciation tone code switching that sort of stuff right in ling in linguistic you've got vocab which you, you could argue is a knowledge base you've got language register grammar and you've got rhetorical techniques using things like metaphor and mimicry and, and irony and what have you and humor um then you've got cognitive stuff the way that you're structuring which again you could argue is is, is part of the grammar part of the knowledge of, of this reasoning being able to self-regulate clarifying and summarizing and so on being able to just you know break down the information that you're conveying in a way that's comprehensible and then social and emotional people are talking about things like uh, turn taking, taking account of the level of understanding in your audience and so on. And so I think it's, it's an interesting sort of framework because it, it sets out the complexity of, or at least some of the complexity of spoken language and communication. You could argue whether it should be called a skills framework or whether it should be just called the oracy framework, given that, you know, the, the knowledge. I mean, you could argue that this whole thing, I, I often take the, take the line that this is a curriculum, essentially, that this is a knowledge base. This is the knowledge base that underpins effective spoken language and communication. And we could teach it we, as, as a curriculum, which whereas oracy is often seen more as a, a pedagogical thing, that it's about dialogic approaches to teaching and learning and actually it's both it's it's learning to talk and learning through talk okay so so i'm take it let's let's go back to cicero and um the the teaching of rhetoric and the three musketeers of rhetoric is logos pathos and ethos and aramis <laughs> that's it <laughs> the fourth one so <clears throat> so you have the own it's you know and logos is the logic of your argument so the reasoning side of what you were talking about ethos is why am i the right person to to talk about this where is my expertise you know we don't believe in no more experts here we believe in you know this is why i can talk about this and these are the things i I know and pathos your social emotional framework the understanding of my audience who i'm speaking to and them and needing to adjust for those around me you know i'm not again that when you you know but you you could call it those things you could draw it from the tradition of 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 rhetoric the big problem is is when it's a framework and moved in separate is the same that the problem is for rhetoric when it's moved away from the other parts of the trivium is that it becomes what is called empty rhetoric mm. it just becomes itself and it's no longer part of the whole now the thing about an education that leads to the point of speaking and speaking well and speaking eloquently is the grammar and dialectic that's gone beforehand 
In other words, that you know your stuff and you know all the arguments and you understand the arguments and you have listened to those arguments and you've you show that in your speech that you've done this because the way you set up a speech is to say these are the arguments for these are the arguments against and these are other arguments blah 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 and these are my why i refute that or why i don't agree with that and this is why i agree with this and finally this is my my reasoning behind the whole thing as you were saying this is what i believe bang 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 and then a peroration at the end um to bring the whole thing together so there, there's a structure already there that has a very rich tradition mm -hmm. around it the danger is is when it becomes a framework away from that it's it, that it's disjointed and taken away from the education that precedes it and i say precede it advisedly it doesn't necessarily precede it but but it, it it can go alongside in other words but but it needs to proceed it by a few minutes to a few hours, to a few days, to a few years or whatever it is, depending on what you're bringing to the table. Um, so there is something there about it has to link together. And the big thing about the Trivium book is saying the danger of teaching things that are disconnected, that that are frameworks, that are bits and bobs that are around the thing and not part of the thing itself, the important centre. I use the image of a three-legged stool. You take away one of the legs and it collapses. Um, and if you've got the legs in different rooms doing different things away from it, then then it doesn't work as a whole. And and that that would be my concern. Yeah, right. So, so I, I, mean, I, I mean, in my view, I think that you need to teach that stuff separately because, like... like um, there's a I think it's, it's an efficient way to do that but also you need to you need to very carefully think about how it's infused into each of the subject disciplines I think that if for example if you had like every every subject teacher all teaching rhetoric across the school it's just like lots of replication and confusion but I think that uh, yeah but I but I'm arguing that it is taught throughout the school all the time even if you're teaching a six-pointer that to me is the rhetoric of that moment on the six pointer. You're teaching how to communicate your learning. Yeah. In that, in that sense. So, but it's not done in the, in this, in the most explicit way. Sorry to interrupt. It's yeah, not yeah, done no, in, no, the, in the most explicit way of saying like, this is a series of lessons about rhetoric. And this is going to help you when you, when you're doing presentations in art and P and maths and what have you, this will help you in these different domains, but let's just treat this as a separate thing now yeah, I'm, again we could discuss this for for ages but but the way the way i do it is uh, you go in to see so many lessons where kids are holding up sugar paper and one of them's sort of talking to or nowadays powerpoints <laughs> and talking to the powerpoint or whatever it happens to be um yes there are ways of teaching it drama lessons are obvious places for for a lot of this but or, or the debating society, et cetera, et cetera. But I think all lessons should be teaching how to communicate beautifully, eloquently and well in this subject, as they should how to write beautifully, eloquently and well in this subject. So you don't just write in one lesson and then that takes care of all lessons as the same as you don't just speak separately to this and then it works for all lessons. There is the the problem of transferability. How do I teach them to speak well in this subject in in a subject specific way 
showing subject specific understanding and and um, and knowledge of the arguments and debates that are going on in this subject. Okay, so thank you for that. Now, I'm, I'm very much aware that um, we have been talking for two hours now and I could talk to you for much longer, but I know that you need to, to go off for now. And so I think that we might just wrap this up in the next 10 minutes or so. And then I think we should get you back on for part two at some point in the future to talk about Athena because like, Athena versus the machine is just super interesting and also your more recent book which is more sort of practical the practicalities of how to how to think about curriculum design and redesign um so so let's wrap up for now with these three questions that i ask to each guest the first one well i'll give you all three and then we'll go through them in order so it's basically what are the positives what do you think we're getting right currently and and you know let's let's keep this focused on curriculum because you know that's what we've been talking about what are we getting right currently what are the major challenges currently as you see it? And what do you think are, is, is the best way to fix or to overcome those challenges? So positives, first of all, what do you like the look of as you as you survey the current situation? Yeah, I think it's great that there is more of a focus on curriculum and less of a focus, apparently, on data. And that to me is, is a positive. A lot of that is Ofsted driven and the problems that come from that is that people then try to make the curriculum that Ofsted want. And therefore, what do Ofsted say about this and how do I make it and what have you done to make it work for Ofsted? So it becomes, again, instrumentalism, managerialism takeover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and instead of being teachers working together, it becomes very much a you must fill in this form in this way using this language in order to put it on the website. So when the Ofsted inspector calls, we've got um, an excuse <laughs> for what we're trying to do. So it's um, so good. There is the curriculum conversation. Bad that the curriculum conversation is driven, perhaps for slightly nefarious reasons uh, and need to be more about creating an education that is enriching that is a rich education with all the problems of what that might be being a subjective term um, for the children in our schools um i've forgotten the last one what was the number three? how are we, we going to fix this problem yeah so how you fixed it well that that comes to curriculum revolutions my last book <laughs> <laughs> my most recent book um talks about trying to how to to fix these things in in a more conversational collegiate way of working um rather than in a, a managerial use this way of doing things sort of way so i tried to um if we if we're just looking at the strict curriculum focus i would say those are the three things you can mm. you can do you you don't have to do things in a way that turns teachers into sort of servants of someone else's ideas you know they can you can create within a collegiate atmosphere a new curriculum um that is joined up that involves joined up thinking that that grows that works in a spiral way 
that that um, really helps children understand what they are studying and are enriched 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 i like they it are. it's a lovely a new word enriched it's a perfectly cromulent word <laughs> and so, so so there's there's a um there's a passage that links to this from athena and i, and I think maybe yeah. we can end on a bit of a cliffhanger yeah um, <laughs> where so this passage you, you're sort of saying with, with, with a more like you know solution focused hat on for want of a better phrase um schools need opportunities for teachers to work together uh, sorry the preceding sentences we're looking at it says that the teachers who resist such changes are often derided right when we're talking about let's change the curriculum and people are like oh hang on a minute let's talk about this but you say that dissent might be the voice um of the dispossessed um and actually that we should encourage we should encourage those those um dissenting conversations then it says schools need opportunities for teachers to work together to enable tacit expertise to grow they need fewer leaders planning fewer edicts from above and more collective approaches that enable teachers to concentrate on the beating heart of the school the curriculum all teachers should have a say in the curriculum not through endless committee meetings but through having real power to design the curriculum its delivery and assessment this is done and this is your word collaboratively Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah yeah and so and so and, and so just to sort of just to set that in context and here comes the cliffhanger which is from the opening lines to um to athena because you're talking essentially about the need for an awakening here like within the teaching profession an awakening of professional of sort of greater autonomy of like greater sort of confidence in being able to to regain this this ground that we've lost since the med the medieval <laughs> era um and yet and yet we find ourselves so here's the opening paragraph from athena versus the machine the great narrative of too many of our schools is mundane with the merely measurable as the pinnacle of meaning counting them in counting them out these schools employ mechanical metaphors each child is set on a flight path and data and targets are worshipped rather than the symbolic spiritual power of a god, in this case, Athena. Um, perhaps this is inevitable in a secular world, but is it wise? These schools bypass the quality of knowing something and replace it with destination data. Knowledge is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. The focus is on the grade and not on the knowing. And essentially, we're in this period of time where education has become like transactional, and it's like, what do I need to do? Like lots of university lecturers complaining, like, what do I need to do to get an A? Like, just, just, like, just help me to get an A. Like, that's all I'm here for. I'm not here to, to become, to develop a love of chemistry or whatever cool. it is. It's like, just give me an A. I've paid my tuition fees. Cool. It's like, tell me what I need to write on the damn paper. Cool. And that's a, that's a dilly of a pickle. You know, we're in a, it's a very, very difficult problem to solve that the, the 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 metaphor of the machine i think that everybody would immediately recognize that sure. you know people who work in the in this in the state system certainly is very machine-like and it is very so you know there are lots of uh, academy chains where you're given a thumb drive when you when you or whatever the latest technological equivalent of this a password to the cloud where you're told you know this this is these are the lessons these are the powerpoints Here's the lesson plan. This is what you do, the teacher as technician. Um, that's that's a really um, difficult difficult transition, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. To get from to 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 transition from machine 
to Athena because that's it. It's not it's not verses, is it? It's like how do we how do we um it's not a battle that needs to rage. It's like how do we sort of evolve from the machine to a more Oh, I think I mean the, the cover is very much a battle. Um it is it is I mean it's a very polemical book. It is a, a battle cry, if you like. Um uh, there there is um a, the need to shout about these things and very much when i wrote that there was was and it's not just in the state sector by any means you know that the 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 justifications that are given through you must you must get your kids to get a an a grade or a 9 or an 8 or a 7 or whatever it happens to be you know you mm. must have a percentage of kids that get these grades at gcse for secondary schools is is huge um and I'm not against kids getting high grades. I just wonder if the grade is the thing itself, then how much do we neglect the the subjects? So in other words, they might have great grades, but do they understand the subject? <laughs> and the way it comes across in a lot of places is no, they don't, but they've got a good grade. Um, now, if you can get good grades and not understand the subject, I think there's a problem. And that's why the, the turn to curriculum is quite a good thing. The problem then is, is buy-in from staff, that staff actually have to be enthused by the curriculum they're teaching. And the way they're enthused by it generally is by having a stake in it, that they have helped develop it over time. Um, and, and not close the classroom door, I will now teach what I want, but actually are involved in it in a collaborative sense this is not collaborative skills this is being given actual collaborative time to create together you know so mm -hmm. i'm not against the word collaboration by the way i'm not against no the idea no of i can no I'm indeed against it becoming collaborative skills it sounds like you're talking more about autonomy as well like like the the, the ability groups, you were groups of autonomy it, yeah a, a, a more autonomous in terms of not being told what to do by hierarchy or something there, there's there was a time in schools that we become so hierarchical that everyone's got a job managing somebody else you know <laughs> and and less flat and i was looking for for flatter hierarchies if you like so there's less hierarchy and more flat management so we we manage each other in departments more rather than have someone in charge of key stage two, someone in charge of key stage three, someone in charge of key stage four, someone in charge of key stage five, deciding everything that happens there, but a flatter management structure, if you like, that we make those choices together because the curriculum knowledge grows from the beginning to the end. It's it's a continual narrative that builds upon what came before yeah. and points towards what comes next. It, it can't be just done in chunks. I agree. Yes. Yeah. The, the, some of the work that I've been doing recently around implementation science and change management, we use these vertical slice teams, which is like this flat structure or essentially like a cross section through the organization. And you have teaching assistants and the Senko and early career teachers and very experienced teachers and, you know, everybody who's got some relevant perspective on whatever it is that you're trying to do. And for example, if you're looking at like revising the science curriculum, then you've got early years, key stage one, key stage two, and all and people representing, you know, across the, the, the whole, um, mm. the whole community. And that the, you, we know that you get really good decision-making when you go about things in that way. 
um leaders just do not have all the answers and and you know so um it seems like there's more that we could talk about there as, as well mm. but for now i'm going to let you get on with the rest of your day it's been delightful to to speak with you at last um and as i say let's let's yeah let's get you back for part two because i feel like there's there's much more to talk about um than we had time for today great i'll look forward to it good stuff thank you thank you that's my pleasure Time is a measure of change We don't have much time Time is a measure of change